You're listening to the Union Church Podcast. For more information about Union, please visit unionboston.org. Oh, come on and put your hands together, everybody across the place, across the house, as we gather in our own house. Yes, our joyful song today as our gospel ensemble just sang our song today indeed is come thou almighty king oh yes we've come to praise thy name even when there still is so much trouble in the air with so much hurt and pain across the land. Perhaps it is now precisely the right time for us to sing this song of freedom, this redemption song on this day of Pentecost when the world is on fire. Maybe the protest chants are the scriptures, tongues of fire that we hear on this Pentecost. As the cross gives way to the empty tomb and the empty tomb gives way to that house where the people were gathered when that mighty rushing wind blew and tongues of fire rained down. Maybe now is the right time to ask Baldwin's question from down at the cross in the fire next time. Do I really want to be integrated into a burning house? Yeah, Pentecost is the perfect opportunity for us to consider again the kingship of our savior. When the man who would be king incites violence with violent words, but yet, Impotent powers and principalities are more concerned with so-called violence against property and buildings and bricks and mortar. Come Holy Spirit and come thou almighty King, you see the King Jesus we read in the scriptures, our story of liberation. King Jesus enters Jerusalem not on the glorious stallion, the white horse of the militaristic power of the empire. No, he enters on the donkey, the worker's workhorse. Come thou almighty king is our song today. And you see in the scriptures right after this triumphal entry on a humble, donkey when jesus enters into jerusalem on his way to be crucified oh we've got to read the story we've got to stay in the word in the gospel right after the scriptural lyrics of come thou almighty king are sung we find these powerful words in the gospel according to saint mark chapter 11 beginning at verse 15 then they came to Jerusalem 
And Jesus, who had just entered triumphantly into Jerusalem, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. Yes, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Verse 16 says, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him. They were afraid of him because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. Yes, beloved, this is the almighty king of which we sing. The Jesus who got angry and protested and marched and marched right into the temple the seat of power and authority. And it was there that he did some work. This angry Jesus went into the temple and emptied it of those who would make a mockery of the house of prayer. Well, beloved, you have to understand the, the account of Jesus, the angry, marching, protesting Jesus, this cleansing of the temple. It occurs in all four of the gospel narratives. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is terribly important. This story, this, this, this frame, this, this, this central point, the Jesus cleansing the temple, it's found in all four gospel narratives. You have to understand that neither Mark nor John have the accounts of the incarnation and the infancy narrative that shaped Christmas. And in order to get the Christmas story containing angels and shepherds, you have to put both Matthew and Luke side by side and, and, and weave them together but the cleansing of the temple, my God, it's in, it's in all four of the Gospels. And the Gospel of John, in fact, says that Jesus made a whip of cords and drove out the people selling cattle and sheep and doves and money changers seated at their tables. Stop making a mockery of my father's house, he yelled. Stop making my father's house into a marketplace if you, in, in case you, you're missing what's happening in, in, in the, these accounts, these gospel accounts of, of Jesus cleansing the temple. Let me make it plain. Jesus was pissed off. And he uses by what any account is destructive force against property in order to make his point. Look, as a pastor, I will never support violence against innocent people. Jesus never injured others. He healed them. But please let us read the text and let us read it carefully. The Prince of Peace destroyed some property. 
If that was the only way to get your attention and to call attention to the corruptions, well, then let it be so. So enough with the restore order and end lawlessness bullshit about bricks and mortars and property. Instead, let's try this. Let's try this. Let's restore order by preventing police from murdering black people on camera. Let's try this. Let's end the lawlessness of prosecutors who fail to arrest and indict murderers, not just one of them, but all four. Let's try this. Let, let us compel justice by protecting life first and then maybe, and it's a big maybe, then we can worry about uh, protecting precincts and, and target stores. Look, anarchist agitation that destroys property in our own neighborhoods is not what I'm talking about. We've got to be careful uh, not to burn down the very stuff our parents and, and grandparents and foremothers and forefathers struggled and died to accumulate. But my God, I just want us to take the scripture and the story of Jesus so seriously that we make a difference, that the scriptures make a difference in the world today. And because it's Pentecost, that, that, that celebration of cultures and languages and diversity and unity, let me be clear, and in the fullest global context, we're not only talking about Minneapolis. Because Minneapolis is Tiananmen Square, China, and, and Tiananmen Square, China is Cairo, Egypt in the Arab Spring, and, and Cairo, Egypt are the base communities in Lima, Peru. Yes, the nature of uprising is truly global in order to make permanent the change we desire. It must occur on a wide global scale, like a pandemic. So it's time for us, beloved, to set the record straight. Or maybe we're queering it, that the Jesus who suffocated on the Roman cross and then breathed onto the disciples in the upper room and then ascended into heaven, but told the people to stay right there in the city of Jerusalem where he was crucified because they would receive power, they would receive dunamis. You see, this Jesus, well, he may not have been an anarchist, but Jesus certainly was an insurrectionist. Just want us to tell the truth sometimes. The truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Because it's theological and moral malpractice to do otherwise. You see, the docility of Jesus is one of the greatest corruptions of the Christian imagination. How we have allowed the story of Jesus recorded in our text, how we've allowed it to be co-opted, lied about, lied upon, 
dispersions cast against it. The docility of Jesus is one of the greatest corruptions of the Christian imagination. It's right up there with the lies of white Jesus with blue eyes and long straight hair. The docility of Jesus, that, 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 that Jesus was this passive miracle worker who did nice things, who said, yeah, let the children come and turn water into wine and all that. But the truth of the matter is that, historically speaking, Jesus of Nazareth was a rebel, a rebel with a cause, but a radical nonetheless. It seems to me that it's time for us to inhabit a religion of radicalism and not one of docility, maybe even a, a religion of, of Black radicalism, Gayrod Wilmore, and not one of docility and white fragility. But look, if, if Jesus must be depicted as a white man, then let's be clear, Jesus had to look more like John Brown than Abraham Lincoln. You know, John Brown, who led the slave result at, revolt at Harper's Ferry, Virginia, and who was later hanged for his insurrection, sounds like Jesus, the one who was hanged on a tree. Jesus, the one who was hanged on a tree, was a prophet and not a president who legally swore to uphold the nation. You see, the role of the prophet is always to critique it, to transform it, to compel the nation to become a better version of itself. And if need be, the, the prophet leads the revolution because when the ideals of the nation are so corrupted, then there's really only one philosophical choice available. And when I speak of philosophy, I mean it in the Marxist sense. That religion, when deployed falsely, can become an opioid of the masses. A drug that lulls us to sleep and, and makes us high and dulls our senses so that we do not feel the pain. But Marx's thesis on Ludwig Feuerbach's 1841 masterpiece, Das Wesen der Christentum, the essence of Christianity says that philosophers have only to this point interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it. The point is to change it. I hear Brother Malcolm saying uh, how we have been bamboozled how we've been hoodwinked to think that philosophy is some abstraction and that Jesus is some docile pacifist that did not get a knee and an elbow deep in the dirt. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus was a zealot, likely crucified because he was deemed an enemy of the state, an insurrectionist. I have in my mind's eye today Reza Aslan's 2014 book, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. Aslan, who is Muslim, like Malcolm, 
it's funny how Muslims like Malcolm and Aslan can sometimes do a better job interpreting Christian scriptures than Christians do sometimes. Well, Aslan places Jesus of Nazareth in his proper political and historical context as a rabble-rousing protester whose hunger for justice was so zealous, so full of passion and anger and zeal that he was deemed an enemy of the state. That's why he was crucified after all. And died so that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus, the angry Jesus, I wonder what if we got angry enough to follow Jesus? What if we believers got some backbone and prayed with our feet and the streets, and if we can't go to the streets, then find ways to support like the Minnesota Freedom Fund, one of the myriad of other ways uh, it's been circulating a document, 26 ways in the struggle beyond the streets that I'll share with you in our next electronic blast. Wonder if we got angry enough to follow the angry Jesus and did something about it. No, we don't have to go to every protest and rally, but there are ways for us all to be involved. Because it's time to cleanse the temple because it's so stained with innocent blood. It's time to abandon the grossly distorted picture of white Jesus and, 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 and turn to the brown, poor, immigrant Jesus and confront the pandemic of privilege and the virus of racism and white supremacy. It's time for us to rethink the entire theological enterprise from start to present, and then the Christian imagination might look different today. Might look different if we read the story, the whole story. We reimagined Jesus. So, yes, that's the title of my message on today, even though my title comes when the sermon is nearly over. The title, the fire this time. Reimagining Jesus with Pentecost power. Now, I'm not saying that we should go and burn everything down, but I am saying that it's time for us to get some fire in our faith. Because that's what Pentecost is really about. This year, it's not tongues of fire, but fires in the streets of Minneapolis that might ignite a faithful fire that compels us to be more like Jesus, the radical rebel Jesus. Because if we're not going to be like the table-turning Jesus of Nazareth, then there's really no point in calling ourselves Christians. So it's time to cleanse the temple. It's time for an uprising, a revolution of our mindset and the Christian imagination. What if we would praise the name of Jesus? 
by protesting injustice? What if we all would embody righteous indignation and righteous discontent because when you're simply exhausted from being sick and tired of being sick and tired, sometimes you get angry and it seems that looting and arson, uh, they come next. King, the other king, MLK, said it correctly, riots are the language of the unheard. The brilliance of the civil rights movement in its years of protest is that it dramatized the collective anger and angst born within the souls of black folks. So no, I'm not interested in the politics of sanctimoniously shaming people who destroy property when lives are being taken. Lives are being taken. The attempt to domesticate black rage and to reduce the spectacle of black pain is not far from the age old attempts to domesticate black Jesus. So, whitewashing. An erasure, to be sure. To be clear, when we talk about whiteness and white supremacy, I'm not talking about a single action or single person, I'm not talking about mere skin color. It's about the system of whiteness. This architecture is about what is done with the skin that one has. Whiteness, a system of privilege that in its worst forms leads to white nationalism and white supremacy that results in the death and destruction of black bodies, brown bodies, and poor bodies. You see, when the governor of Minnesota wants to say that the protesters are no longer grieving George Floyd, it's a fundamental misreading, just as we have fundamentally uh, misread our own scriptures. This is entirely about George, and the be- from its beginning, the protests were always more than about one person, more than just about Derek Chauvin. But rather, it's about the structural sin of white supremacy and racism, which is inextricably linked to the capitalistic mode of production that values property over people. By all means, that's why the enslavement of black people happened. Literally, that's what enslavement is, the placing of property over people. So good liberals need to be really careful right now. We all need to be really careful to carefully read the text. Carefully read the Pentecost story, which is the story of the world today. Yes, a story layered with meaning and with possibility. A story, many themes, from climate change and ecological empathy 
to cultural diversity and multilingual learning, from empowerment ethics to human flourishing and intersectional justice. Beloved, we'll deal more with this churchwide Bible study during the month of June, but for now, as I close, let me just say that the basic elements of the Pentecost story, which is very much the story of our world today, the basic elements are earth, wind, and fire. I'm not talking about the band and whether we will remember the 21st night of September. I wonder whether America will remember the 25th day of May because the earth cries out when an unarmed black man's wind is stolen, suffocated just days prior to Pentecost, the feast of breath. So the world is on fire. This Pentecost, during this breathless age, the church needs to breathe. So yes, that's the title of this message. Fire this time, reimagining Jesus with Pentecost power. This message is a reminder to keep breathing because my God, it's all right there in the story right in front of us. Jesus could not breathe on the cross. He was suffocated and the spirit is poured out on Pentecost, the feast of breath on a people, all people. The wind was violent. The police crushed a man's windpipe. The revolution may not be televised, but its causes were. This is the day of Holy Ghost Pentecost is being poured out. And today, unholy ghosts of white supremacy and racism still very much haunt us. On Monday, we watch yet another unarmed black man, George Floyd, murdered on video while pleading, I can't breathe. Earlier that same day in New York City, Amy Cooper called the cops on a bird watcher, Christian Cooper, telling the bald-faced lie, there's an African-American threatening my life. She knew what she was doing. You see, the little white lies we tell about Jesus are not far away from the lies of Amy Cooper. And they have consequences, real consequences on real black bodies. So we need a revival. Yeah, Pentecost revival. A revival of spiritual, moral, ethical leadership. My God, we need a network of liberation churches who preach the full gospel of liberation. We need churches who speak the language of faith to speak out against injustice. So I close with Baldwin. Down at the cross. Fire next time. What will happen to all that beauty, he writes. For black people, though I am aware that some of us, black and white, do not know it yet, black people are very beautiful. 
And when I sat at Elijah's table and watched the baby, the women and the men, and we talked about God's or Allah's vengeance, I wondered when that vengeance was achieved, what will happen to all that beauty then? I could also see that the intransigence and ignorance of the white world might make the vengeance inevitable, a vengeance that does not really depend on and cannot really be executed by any person or organization and that cannot be prevented by any police force or army. Historical vengeance, a cosmic vengeance based on the law that we recognize when we say whatever goes up must come down. Here we are at the center of the ark, trapped in the gaudiest, most valuable, and most improbable water wheel the world has ever seen. Everything now, we must assume, is in our hands. We have no right to assume otherwise, writes Baldwin. If we, and now I mean the relatively conscious whites and the relatively conscious blacks who must, like lovers, insist on or create the consciousness of the others do not falter in our duty now. We may be able, handful that we are, to end the racial nightmare and achieve our country and change the history of the world. If we do not dare everything, the fulfillment of that prophecy Recreated from the Bible in the song by a slave is upon us. God gave Noah the rainbow sign. No more water. The fire this time. Let it be so. Amen. you for listening to this podcast. For more information about Union Church, please visit unionboston.org.